KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno. And it is 3 p.m. here at 94.1 FM KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. And time now for Cover to Cover. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. The shadow out of sight. This is this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, twenty sixth January, twenty ten. <laughs> the world continues to spin. Yes, refugees wander. Internal refugees, they call them now, weeping. I think I've said enough about uh, what's wrong with the world. When will the pain end and all that nonsense. Uh, I used to try to uh, consider the meaning of all this grief, you know, hell and high water and all that. And to ask myself whether or not today's tragedies will teach us, prepare us for tomorrow's catastrophes. I read this week all kinds of nonsense about people who believe that the people of Haiti are suffering from God's punishments. Yes, some write that God has forsaken the people of Haiti. I think that most of us know it is not God but government that has failed the people of the exhausted people, uh, you know, they don't have a government with the means to rescue the living or bury the dead, all that stuff. The first responders <laughs> uh, tried and, of course, failed. I, I, I don't know, I think, uh, too little, too late. Uh, mostly anyone with a hammer was the person we turned to uh, the NGOs, non-governmental organizations, non-governmental organizations, seem to be the only, what would you call it, system in place. Uh, I guess it's time to give up hope for deliverance from benign governments. I think uh, Katrina taught us that. The United Nations, the United States, all these giant military machines. What it comes down to in the end, I suppose, is our neighbors, the others. Homo empathicus. I heard that expression last night on the radio, four in the morning, I think. Somebody was talking about homo empathicus. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. 
I looked in the mirror this morning and I thought, she's not very empathetic. Ah, yes, I turned on the television, said, log on, log on. I guess I'm on the off-ramp, on the information highway. I stop the car, get out and walk. I've been consulting the omens, reading the entrails lately, and I'll come back to the beginning. What is that phrase about coming full circle, going back to the beginning and uh, knowing the place for the first time? Of course, it's all about love and stuff. Yuck, yuck, love and stuff. (laughs) The argument on the radio, I remember. Those two guys were arguing whether love and empathy were the same thing. Yeah, well, okay. I, 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 uh, finally someone said something uh, along the lines of Bertolt Brecht, you know, first feed the face and then talk right and wrong. I remember uh, Cory Aquino years ago during the Philippine Revolution, she said there are many ways to run a government, but there's only one way to treat people. Yes, your mother knows separation is the source of all evil. No one is other. On the other hand, um, the U.N. guys, the troops, yes, they're walking around with guns, not shovels. Uh, This business of how to humanize the tent cities of tomorrow. I thought, I remember thinking years ago when the women went into the military, I thought, well, you know, that'll domesticate. That'll domesticate the guys, but I'm afraid the mythos uh, is too powerful, the warrior mythos. Uh, Cuba, uh, Castro's people seem to be able to, uh, you know, use both both hands, the left hand and the right hand. They seem to be able to do their military tasks and then turn around and, uh, uh, you know... Uh, at least, well, if not if not collect the coffee, at least uh, help out, not be social workers exactly. But yes, of course, of course. You remember when we thought that the police could be turned into community organizers helping people? I don't know, medical clinics, um, places like that. I used to uh, hang around when I was a kid. When I was 15, my father had a little hospital out in Arizona. And... You know, we just put things together. I I don't see um, that there's a problem. I think when I began to uh, work here at KPFA, I was hooked into, uh, I guess, the, the feminist ethic. And I thought that um, feminism, you know, would alter our human relationships, that it would uh, raise the questions about human relationships that we needed to uh, solve, you know. And then I realized that it seems no matter how much society changes, no matter how much socio-political change comes along, human nature is a constant. Uh, <laughs> check out the children of the feminists see what's happening there I'll get around to that one of these days but uh, the evolution of our emotional lives is a puzzle I keep wondering how we can evolve you know from generation to generation and get a little wiser as Rodney King said can't we all just get along why is it so difficult for human beings simply to love one another uh 
I guess it's all about how we how we learn to relate to those big people we meet when we're in that cradle and they they have us in their power. For most of us, especially uh, the second wave of feminism, we were worried about the the relationship between the men and the women. This affair of the hearts and minds of husbands and wives, lovers. Uh, I think it's parents and children, but that's just me. Uh, I looked up something last night in Carl Jung. I was reading Sophie Tolstoy, the wife of Leo Tolstoy. And uh, she seemed to be a woman with a great animus. Carl Jung said that the the woman always consumed with her animus, uh, usually had a sacred conviction and that her her uh, mantra was, all I want is love and he doesn't love me. In other words, uh, Jung seemed to conclude that women, and sometimes men, look for God in the lover. That is, uh, we're looking for the parent, the mother, the father, in the lover. Okay, now, (laughs) this is one of our stories, and I've been kicking it around now for 50 years, and I haven't gotten anywhere at all. Uh, I just think that it's worth more study. I think that the third wave of feminism is going to have to take the whole thing apart and put it back together again. I've already used up 10 minutes of my time just trying to collect my thoughts. This is a bad sign. Anyway, there's a new movie. It's called The Last Station. It's about Sophie Tolstoy and her good husband, Leo Tolstoy, that guy who wrote War and Peace and Anna Karenina, the great Russian novelist, a genius. Now, when I first read Sophie Tolstoy, I just thought, oh, what's she being so so masochistic about after all? Couldn't she just go get a life? <laughs> she had 13 children. In the movie, we will get Helen Mirren as Sophie Tolstoy. She's one of our great classic actors now. And Christopher Plummer is playing uh, Leo Tolstoy. Now, Christopher Plummer is not a very empathic actor. Uh, he has a reputation being quite a, a grouchy fellow, but we will see. Let me just read you a few excerpts from Sophie Tolstoy's diaries and see whether you think uh, she was onto something. Uh, I don't know. Uh, she reminded me, I kept thinking of an, an old enamorata of mine who always insisted that women enjoyed their suffering, you know. And I would say, well, you know, it's probably the only game in town. Sophie Tolstoy was born in 1844. She died in 1919. (laughs) When my parents were just teenagers, right? Anyway, um, check out the movie called The Last Station if you're interested in the domestic life of the Tolstoys. It tells us a lot about what's going on in today's, what is it, today's domestic scene. Hasn't changed a bit, hasn't changed a bit. Sophie was only 18 when she married Leo Tolstoy. Her last name was Bears, B-E-R-S. 
He was almost twice her age, had led a youth of soldiering, drinking, womanizing. He was given to fits of unaccountable moodiness. He was the greatest literary genius of their time. She adored him. But within two months of their marriage, she began to confide to her diary her misery, her inability to reconcile herself to his past, her jealousies, her failure to understand him. <laughs> For the rest of her life, she wrote furiously in an effort to decipher the progressive deterioration of the relationship that had begun with such high elation on both their parts. She often tried to write about him objectively. If she couldn't be his literary companion, she wanted to be his biographer. She wanted to be the custodian of his papers and diaries, anything that would bring her closer to grasping the elusive power of his genius. The thirteen children she bore him exhausted her physically. Her unused intellectual energies found thwarted expression in quarrels and self-pity. Her diary frequently laments his lust and expresses a yearning for a closer psychic intimacy. When Tolstoy turned from fiction to social and philosophical causes, Sophie understood him even less. His communal primitive Christian creed mystified her, and drew from her a response of deeper conformity to her rigid upbringing. <laughs> her passion to understand him eventually unbalanced her mind. Yet throughout her diary, she saw herself in objective flashes and portrayed her ordeal with the gifts of a natural writer. <laughs> Now that business there of the Christian creed and the primitive communal living thing. Uh, now Tolstoy has that in common with oh the transcendentalists, uh, Vincent Van Gogh, a whole bunch of people. There seems to be this desire in many of us to live without uh, exclusivity, to live in a clan, a family, a group. That's just so lovely. Yes. I can remember it happening, oh, for maybe 20 minutes, about three times in my life, <laughs> when everyone, everyone was in agreement, and we were all, what is it, cooperating like the fingers on a hand, yes. The communal life, the clan, the family. Anyway, here's Sophie. In 1862... Oh, the diary once again. It makes me sad to go back to the old habits which I gave up when I got married. I used to take to writing whenever I felt depressed, and I'm probably doing it now for the same reason. I have been feeling frightened ever since yesterday when he told me he did not believe in my love. What is he doing to me? Gradually I shall retreat into myself and shall poison his life. Yet I feel so sorry for him at those times when he doesn't believe in me. His eyes fill with tears. He has such a meek, wistful look. At such moments I could strangle him with love and yet the thought pursues me. He doesn't believe in me. He doesn't believe in me. 
Today I suddenly felt that we would gradually drift apart and each live our own lives, that I would create my own sad world for myself, and he a world full of work and doubt. And this relationship struck me as vulgar. I have stopped believing in his love. When he kisses me, I think to myself, well, I'm not the first woman, and it begins to hurt me that this love of mine, my first and last, should not be enough for him. My footnote here, something all about this measuring again. How much love, yes, indeed, and again, this difficulty of looking for God in the other, the lover. I remember once thinking that the the ultimate, the ultimate question would be looking into the eyes of a lover and saying, why aren't you me? Okay, a month later in November, Sophie writes... I can't find any occupation for myself. He is lucky to be so clever and talented, but I'm neither the one nor the other. One can't live on love alone, and I'm so stupid that I can do nothing but think of him. He is unwell, and I begin to believe that he will die, and that is enough to make me miserable. When he is away or working, I always think of him listening for his footsteps, and when he is here, I keep watching his face. It is probably due to my pregnancy that I am in this abnormal state, which, to a certain extent, affects him too. It isn't hard to find work, but before doing anything, one has to create some enthusiasm for breeding hens, tinkling the piano, reading a lot of silly books, and a very few good ones, or pickling cucumbers and what not. All this will come in time, when I forget my lazy old life and get used to the country. I, I don't want to get into the common rut and be bored, but I shan't be. I wish my husband had a greater influence over me. It's strange that I should love him so much, yet feel his influence so little. I put a big red mark over that sentence, maybe 20 years ago, yes. She... uh is her own person. She doesn't like that. Apparently she would, she would, or she wanted, she desired to um, have this man influence her, control her. Uh, but in spite of her love for him, uh, that didn't happen. Anyway, she goes on to say, to write, in a few years, I shall have created a woman's world for myself which I shall love even more, for it will contain my husband, my children, whom one loves even more than one's parents and brothers, but I haven't reached that stage yet. I'm still wavering between the past and the future. My husband loves me too much to put me on a sound footing just yet. It is difficult anyway, and I will have to work it all out for myself. 
Besides, he feels that I have already changed with a little effort. I can again become what I was before, although no longer a maiden, but a woman. And when this happens, both he and I will be satisfied. My footnote here says she's painting herself into a corner. None of that makes any sense. Uh, obviously, this woman is very angry. Okay. Uh, a few weeks later, she writes. This is Sophie Tolstoy writing of her husband, Leo Tolstoy, in her diaries. We're in 1862. She writes, he disgusts me with his people. I feel he ought to choose between me, that is, the representative of the family, and his beloved people, with a capital P, as people. This is egoism, I know, but let it be. I have given my life to him. I live through him, and I expect him to do the same. Otherwise, the place grows too depressing. I ran away today because everybody and everything repelled me. Auntie and the students, the walls, the whole life here. I laughed for joy when I ran quietly away from the house. He did not disgust me, but suddenly I felt that he and I were miles apart, i.e. that his people could never absorb all my attention, while I couldn't take up all his attention as he does mine. It's quite clear if I am no good to him, if I am merely a doll, a wife, and not a human being, then it is all useless, and I don't want to carry on this existence. Of course I am idle, but I am not idle by nature. I simply haven't yet discovered what I can do here. Now, I know he is brilliant, poetic, intelligent, full of power. But it annoys me that he should look at everything from a gloomy angle. I sometimes want to break loose from his somewhat somber influence to ignore it, but I can't. His influence is depressing because I begin to think in his way to see things with his eyes. And I am afraid of losing my own self. And yet not becoming like him. Hmm. The footnote here says <laughs> she's in, in a psychic cage. Yes. What is it we do? Uh, what was it Virginia Woolf said? The eyes of others uh, are prisons, their thoughts are cages. Okay, she's in Moscow now. It's a year later, 1863. The real source of all my troubles and bad moods is my egoism. My idea that his whole life, his thoughts and his love must belong to me. It's the rule with me, no sooner do I begin to get fond of something than I pull myself up by reminding myself that I love nothing and no one except him. And yet one ought to have something else to love as well, just as he loves his work, so that I could turn to it whenever he is cold to me. Such moments are bound to come more and more frequently, but in reality it has been like this all the time. I see it quite clearly now, for I have nothing else to occupy my mind. He, of course, 
is too busy to notice all the details of our relationship. <laughs> he says he would like to live in Moscow. I've been expecting it. It makes me jealous to see how he can find his ideal in the first pretty woman he meets. Such a passion is terrible, blind, incurable. I have never lived up to his ideal and never will. I feel abandoned during the day, in the evening, at night, all the time. I am a source of satisfaction to him. A nurse, a piece of furniture, a woman, nothing more. I try to suppress all human feelings in myself. While the machine works, warms the milk, knits a blanket, walks up and down without thinking, life is still bearable. But he has stopped loving me. Why? Why was I not able to keep his love? But how could I? It is fate. There was a moment, I admit it, a moment of sorrow, when nothing in the world mattered any more except the love I had lost. His writing meant nothing to me then. What did all those conversations matter between Countess so-and-so and, -so and Princess so-and-so? But afterwards, I despised myself for the thought. My existence is so deadly dull, while his is so full and rich with his work and genius and immortal fame. I'm reading to you from the uh, diaries of Sophie Tolstoy. A woman who seems to be a uh, a template for the masochistic wife who wishes to live through her husband, but is unable to do so. Uh, she goes on and on to simply describe the ways in which he is not like her. And she doesn't say that she'd really rather be herself. I wish to goodness she could. Uh, she says, he is never gay now. He has lost forever his capacity to be happy and joyful. Uh, she writes, I have always been told that a woman must love her husband and be honorable and be a good wife and mother. They write such things in ABC books, and it is all nonsense. The thing to do is not to love, to be clever and sly, and to hide all one's bad points. As if anyone in the world had no faults, and the main thing is not to love. See what I have done by loving him so deeply. It is so painful, so humiliating. He thinks it is merely silly. <laughs> anyway, the diary goes on and on, and as Sophie begins to read um, her husband's diaries, he begins to uh, hide them from her. Yes. And uh, he says that, she says that Leo, her husband, has come to think of her as a scourge. After throwing on me the whole responsibility of the children and their education, the household duties, money matters, and all the other material things, which they all make greater use of than I ever did, with cold, officious, and pious expression, he tells me to give a horse to a peasant or some money or some flower or this or that or the next thing. Okay, she's now resenting uh, the fact that he leaves the domestic duties to her. Uh, 
And she goes on to threaten. She wants to be done with her life. Uh, I may have time to read you some more of this incredibly depressing diary of Sophie Tolstoy. Uh, talk about a woman in a trap. Helen Mirren gives full expression to the frustrations and anguish of this woman. I think perhaps Ibsen's play Hedda Gobbler would be a better <laughs> would be a better uh, template for Sophie Tolstoy. Uh, once again, it's Helen Mirren and Christopher Plummer in a movie called The Last Station, all about the domestic life of Sophie and Leo Tolstoy, Russian tragedy. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Allison, host and producer of The Morning Show, with great news. The Morning Show's got a new co-host, the fantastic Brian Edwards Teeker. Oh, thanks, Amy. Now, Philip Moldry is moving to Sunday morning, so you can check him out every week from 9 to 11 a.m. And on weekdays, wake up with KPFA for interviews, debates, culture, and breaking news from around the Bay and around the world. That's a brand new Morning Show's weekdays from 7 to 9 a.m. with me, Amy Allison, and now Brian Edwards Teeker. We'll see you in the morning. And it is coming up on 3.30 here at 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley. 